Well, I, I, uh, we're going to talk about St. Matilda, everyone's favorite saint, right? Everyone knew who Matilda is? Yes. You know, Holly and I were having a daughter. Maybe Matilda's the name we should pick out. I don't know. Something to think about. It's a great name, Matilda. I, 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 Gertrude is a beautiful name. I actually like both of them. But um, that's beside the point. We don't need to talk about my children. I, uh, the one thing, though, is uh, I actually, does it, I, I forgot the name of the, the convent where she was at. Her? Yes, I had to look that up because I had no idea where that was. But it's close to Wittenberg. In Germany, just a little fun little Madenburg is where it's close to. But anyways, Google Maps, great thing. Check it out. All right. Anyways, uh, the one thing is, uh, you know, in case you didn't get a chance to read the chapter, not that you guys would not read the chapter, because you guys go home and study this pervusely. Yes, pervusely? What does that mean? <laughs> going to drink some more coffee here. Is this mic on? All right. Uh, just a quick review. And one of the reasons why I just want a quick review is, A, I want to make sure I'm actually on the right track here because it's been a few weeks since I've taught. And I, I did talk to Pastor Gainig, so I think I know where I'm at. Uh, just a review. We talked about Mary, uh, Sarah. Then we talked about mystics and, and the monastic life or nuns. But one of the things that we learned is that, you know, Mary and Sarah, ordinary women who received extraordinary words. Obviously, Mary received Jesus, the incarnate word, and Sarah received the word of promise. Um, then we learned about mystics and how mystics uh, in, in prayer, using the name, creates a, a, uh, a wider vision for the world. When I say wider I mean something more profound than what our quote-unquote natural eyes see. And then the monastic life, and uh, I think Pastor, Pastor Gainick said, so we all should say our prayers, practice charity, and care for the family, which sounds very ordinary. You know, this is normal stuff. And what we find out even in St. Matilda now is that even though the, these women live profound lives, uh, they are not inaccessible to other women, even to me as a, as a dude, as a man. But one of the things I wanted to point out, though, and we're going to start at the end of the chapter, pages 30 and 31, and, and the Pope's uh, words actually into the reader, and it sounds Lutheran, which is good, you know, or Catholic, universal, that is. All right, dear friends, personal and liturgical prayer especially the Liturgy of the Hours and Holy Mass are the root of St. Matilda of Hackborn's spiritual experience. In letting herself be guided by sacred scripture and nourished by the bread of the Eucharist, she followed a path of close union with the Lord, ever in full fidelity to the Church. There is also a strong invitation to us to intensify our friendship with the Lord, especially through daily prayer and attentive, faithful, and active participation in Holy Mass. The liturgy is a great school of spirituality. So basically what we find out is Matilda, to use the Lutheran term, is all about word and sacrament. But I, I happen to like the way Pope Benedict puts it. So we'll, we'll talk about sacred scripture and the Eucharist or Holy Communion, uh, the Holy Supper, whatever. 
And as the basis of St. Matilda's spiritual experience or her identity as Christian, which if we start at that level, then that becomes very accessible to all of us because I know most of us don't have a crowd of women around us listening as if we're preachers. Um, you know, most of us don't have our sister and other nuns writing, you know, about our sufferings behind our backs. Um, but all of us do have this experience of, or the opportunities to practice daily prayer, uh, you know, which would be a, a prayerful reading of sacred scripture. And we all have access to the Holy Supper, the Lord's Supper. And so if we start at that basic level, then we have something to attach ourselves to St. Matilda, and maybe she will lead us into a more profound and deeper spiritual reality that will hopefully affect our, our normal life. So let's talk about St. Matilda real quick. The, the monastic life. St. Matilda's entire existence was for God and neighbor. And St. Gertrude uh, wrote about you know, St. Matilda's sufferings you know, making her angry because she didn't want any type of attention to herself. But then the Lord, God, revealed to her the fact that these writings were for, the glori for glorifying God and then the benefit of the neighbor, and that she was okay with that. Um, that's very important because at the outset, as we're introduced to St. Matilda, we realize that her, you know, who's not mentioned in this notion of her, her sufferings? Her sufferings aren't by herself, but are... are St. Matilda now becomes a sign or a means in which to glorify God and then benefit the neighbor. So uh, she's actually living outside herself, which is, you know, hard for most of us to do because we, when suffering happens, we, we mainly think about ourselves and what, uh, you know, how we're going to get through it. So that's important. Next thing is this mystic contemplation, which for the way it's described, all has to do with sacred scripture. And the way I like to talk about it is St. Matilda was saturated with the Word of God. And that, that's, a, that's a good thing to kind of, a good image to use, because on multiple levels, um, when one is saturated with the Word of God, uh, two things happen. First, as like a sponge, right? A sponge, when you, you buy those from, you know, Target... You put, you know, you get your sponges, and then when you put it in the water, it expands. One of the our our kids, you know, we have these like little. Uh, I think we can get them in the twenty-five cent, uh, used to be gumball machine thing. It's like a little. Uh, it almost looks like a pill. Then you throw it in the bathtub, and all of a sudden it turns into like some kind of animal, a sponge animal. When one is saturated with the Word of God, your world actually expands, it grows, and, but that doesn't necessarily, as a sponge, you don't change who you are, you become more of who you are. So you become full, more fully who God's called you to be, more fully Shirley, Mary, Holly, Jenny, you know, you become, your, you become more of yourself and grow as a person by, by God's Word. So saturated with the Word of God, that, that's important, and that's actually something where um, the question would be, when you're saturated with the Word of God, uh, you know, with sponges, the analogy breaks down because it just can't keep growing. It has to stop. But with us, when we become saturated with the Word of God, our life enters into, when we'll see this in multiple places, 
into the abundant life or into the manifold. Norman Nagel from uh, Lutheran Pastor, Professor, you know, Pastor Ruzik's mentor. He always talked about how uh, God's word always enters into the manifold. It, it goes across the horizon and enters into a whole new existence. So, um, and that's the great thing about God's word. When you're saturated with it, there's no ending to it. And we'll, we'll take a look at how that actually is explained in scripture. The, the second level about being saturated with God's word is the, the whole notion of God's presence in your life, which is... a which, which is kind of a, a, a this is thinking, it's explained on multiple levels. But when one is saturated with God's word, God's word is actually so present, it's unnoticeable. So if we have a sponge that's filled up, and we, you know, if we just put it on the table, if the sponge actually retains the water, you won't know actually if it has water until you actually, you know, touch it. The thing is, is this happens in our life oftentimes, is that when, when we are saturated with God's word, our world expands, and we see that the light, you know, we're illuminated, and everything is wonderful, but where the rubber meets the road is when our life is saturated with God's word, and it seems like he's not around. See, the problem is, is not God's presence, but our understanding or vision of that presence. You know, it's, it's like, it's your typical, where are my glasses? You know, where are they? Look around, they're so close you can't even see them. That's how God's, God's uh, uh, when one is saturated, it becomes so close to you at times it seems it's hard to find him. But the reality is, is that he's so close, he's opening up your world precisely through that, that moment of crisis, which we see in St. Matilda's life you know, the sufferings, and then the only person who was able to see that was her sisters, you know, St. Gertrude, and she had to write all that stuff down. So, uh, now the one thing, too, is is how she got saturated with God's Word. Most of the times when we talk about sacred scripture, we think about, um, you know, sitting at home, reading her Bible. But for St. Matilda, it was it was in the liturgical hours, or the canonical hours, or liturgical prayer, which I, I listed here, Matins, Lauds, those are like the prayer offices that the monastic life would practice. But, uh, so she, she was, her understanding of sacred scripture wasn't reading it as a book, but using scripture as a, a devotional tool or a prayer, which is very important for our posture as Christians, that we see God's word doesn't end in the brain, but ends in prayer, which ends in life, or moves into life, you could say. And then, you know, we find out the love for the gospel, a pretty extraordinary description of her love on page 30. But the most interesting thing for me about that part is where her sto- God's story and her story become one. All the visions and the events and the sufferings are all explained in these writings according to the biblical language or the um, uh, biblical events, which we, we might understand from a literary perspective. Hey, that sounds real nice. But the fact is, is that that's done with intentionality because then when her story is told by God's story, then what happens and goes for God's story then goes for her. And we all know how God's story ends. That's how her story ends. And the last eight years of her life, we find out she went through a lot of suffering. And then, you know, there's this great story even at the end of her life. 
she asks for a little bit more time, which is very different. And we're not going to get into death and dying, but that's very different than a lot of people. When we have eight years of suffering, what, what I most often hear, oh, Lord, please take me now. I've been suffering for so long. I, you know, I don't want to suffer anymore. I just wish God would, would take me. Uh, that's, that's the opposite of what St. Matilda said. St. Matilda said, hey, let me be here a little bit longer so that you can use me for your glory and the benefit of the neighbor. For a very profound notion, and that, that probably could be a Friday morning women's Bible study right there, what that all means. But So we see this, this, this understanding that uh, when, her, when God's story tells her story, her story becomes much fuller and richer, and it becomes a, a, uh, a story of, of profound meaning. That doesn't stop even, even with her death. The other aspect, too, though, is the, you know, this intimacy. And it's res- it resides in her uh, piety or U- Eucharistic piety. Now, the word ecstasy is used, which obviously has a bad rap now these days because it's a drug. But, uh, you know, one of the... Um, most famous uses of ecstasy in, uh, you know, kind of church tradition is uh, St. Teresa by, um, I want to, not Benini, or is it Benini? It's, just, uh, it's a great statue of the angel piercing St. Teresa's heart, and she's in ecstasy, created quite a stir in the Renaissance. Um, you can look that up later, Google it, along with uh, Hackborn and the place where St. Matilda, her convent was, so you can do that all, all in one shot. The word ecstasy in uh, biblical tradition actually is a very profound intimacy between God and the person in a way that is deeper than words. So yeah, I just put it in there, deeply absorbed and engrossed in the divine presence of God. And there's two aspects, eternally, internally and externally. And the internal is kind of what's mostly described in St. Matilda's story about how she uh, you know, it'd be hard, you know, people try to, like, talk to her, but she was so engrossed in God's presence, she, you know, she couldn't hear. Um, but the external reality of the divine presence or the, the kind of the saturation of the divine presence is a changed life. So what happens in, internally then becomes lived out externally. And that, ha- obviously, if we think about the Lord's Supper, even in our own Lutheran liturgy, we, we, we eat, we eat Jesus, goes inside us, and then if we follow and we meditate upon the liturgy, the shape of the liturgy, we realize that our, our divine presence then pushes us out externally. So we have an internal reality, then we have an external reality. That's why we have communion at the end of the service. We don't have it first because that wouldn't make sense, theologically speaking. So God changes our lives internally, and the, the great thing, though, is, is that when we think of St. Matilda and this notion of ecstasy and this, oh, it'd be fantastic if I had this intimate re- relationship with God. God does have an intimate relationship with you because he's inside you. Um, the challenge for us would be to actually let it be to me or to us as God, in fact, is doing to us. Not to get too far on a tangent, but Luther's small catechism, which you know you all go home and meditate upon every night, and the Lord's Supper, 
uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The whole explanation to that is Luther says, you know, God's kingdom is going to come whether we like it or not. But in this prayer, we, we pray that it comes among us or, or in us. And then what does this mean? It basically means that this objective reality that's happening would actually then live subjectively inside us and through us. That's, that's, all, that's basically the entire explanation of the Lord's Prayer. He applies it to almost every single petition, which is, a, which is along the same lines as we read in St. Matilda's life and her understanding, or the, the Pope's understanding of her life, Sacred Scripture, and Holy Communion, is that there's this objective reality coming to the person, specifically St. Matilda, and then we have this subjective change in the heart, in the mind, in the soul, that then, then carries out externally back into the objective world where actions actually take place. Um, well, then we, yeah, we find out in one of her visions, Jesus himself recommended the gospel to her, opening the wound, the sacred heart of Jesus, in his most gent- uh, opening the wound in his most gentle heart, he said to her, consider the immensity of my love. If you want to know it well, nowhere will you find it more clearly expressed than in the gospel. Um, two levels to that gospel is obviously the, the word. The, the What's going on here is we have the gospel, which is also, also you know, always no, uh, considered to be part, you know, obviously in the book, in, in the sacred scripture. But then as Jesus connects it to his sacred heart, then it becomes the tangible reality or the, the Eucharistic reality of the gospel. So we, even through St. Matilda, we have this very close, intimate connection between God's word and God's sacrament in the, in the Holy Eucharist. Which uh, is, you know, I think that's a really nice image. So Jesus says, when you look for love, you look at it in my word, and you look at it in my bodily presence. So the gospel always moves into the tangible heart or the tangible wor- world. So anyways, that, that, that's kind of my two cents about St. Matilda. Now we're going to get to the reality of how this actually applies to the normal life. None of us are nuns here. We don't live the monastic life insofar as, you know, what the average person would consider the monastic life, but the normal life. So let's start out again. St. Matilda, her entire existence was about God and neighbor. You know, is that what we believe in Lutherans? Yeah, of course we kind of do. Yeah, right, I get this notion. But let's attach it to the liturgical prayer, just like St. Matilda. The post-communion collect, uh, which is written right there, and I, I think I got it right. I just did it from memory. We give thanks to you, Almighty God, that you have refreshed us through the salutary gift, and we implore you that of your mercy you would strengthen us through the same in faith towards you, God, and in fervent love towards the neighbor. Neighbor. So God and neighbor... Benefit, Carol, thank you very much. I forgot to mention at the beginning of class, if you don't have your Bible, please grab a Bible. Thank you, Carol. Um, so even within our liturgical prayer, our Lutheran identity, this is, this is not uh, a, a Catholic identity. This is just a biblical identity. This is what Christians, Catholic small c, believe and practice, not only in life, but in worship. And we see the direct connection between our litur- liturgy and life right there. Bam, right there. That is a template for our life. 
it is concretely shown in the Holy Eucharist. This is the post-communion collect. We're praying about what has just happened. God has given us the word to speak and the life to live, and now we are responding. We, are, we have this ability to pray with Jesus this prayer. Okay? So, this is something we practice all the time. Does it happen? It happens objectively, absolutely, because it happens in a liturgy. One of the great things, if you ever have the experience, is have a non-Christian who might be actually religious or think on a more spiritual level, have them come to church, and they'll, they'll evaluate everything that's going on. They'll say, well, why do you do this? Oh, that's interesting. Why do you do that? And if, you know, if they actually really care, they might actually listen to the words or read the prayers. And then they might say, oh, this is very interesting. And the reality is, is that sometimes, so we've got to have an answer to them, first of all. But this, this notion is that this happens objectively. And we, we can see that when we have someone who's a visitor, someone who's a non-Christian, who's actually looking at this without any prior knowledge. So there's no notion of, hey, I already know this. I'm not, I'm not going to turn my brain on. I'm not going to open my heart. They're actually engaged in it, and they say, oh, this is, you know, why do you pray this? Which then kind of hopefully reminds you to say, oh, yeah, this actually does happen to me. Uh, may it be done unto me, as you have said. Which echoes Mary's word way back when, when we talked about Mary. Okay. Oh, hey, yeah, so we should turn to Mark chapter 12. I'm sorry. Mark chapter 12, 28, 34, you know, this is a, a well-known instance in Jesus' life. But the reason why I turn to Mark chapter 12, it's because it's very positive. Not to get into the gospel comparatives, but most of the time, like in the gospel of Luke, even in the gospel of Matthew, when, Jesus, uh, when someone asks Jesus a question, they're usually trying to trap him, or they try to justify themselves. This is not the case in Mark chapter 12. So one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing, that's the Sadducees and the Pharisees, with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, and there's no reason not to believe these words, meaning like, oh, he doesn't really mean that. So he actually is interested in what Jesus has to say. Like, he's, he saw, this is very cool. Answered them well, he asked, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. That's from Deuteronomy. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There are no other commandments greater than these. And the, the, the love your neighbor is from Leviticus. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher, you have truly said that he is one, and there's no other beside him, and to love him with all your heart, understanding, strength, and love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's not what Jesus said, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, well, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, and, and when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to them, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any questions. Jesus' response is a true response, meaning this guy's got it. Love God, love neighbor, that's the kingdom of God. Now, the word for kingdom is also the reign of God or the way of God. So what this man is realizing or experiencing in his own life is that he is now becoming 
part of the way that God operates in the world. Uh, you know, for, for the Bible translation there, the word kingdom is kind of a tough thing because the Greek word could be translated as a noun, which is here, or as a verb, or like the rain, the, the rain, you know, R-E-I-G-N, the reign of God, the way he carries out, the way he lives in this world right now. So, um, uh, but now what, what the, 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 the guy says, though, is, is much you know, better than the, all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. What he's, which he's saying now is, is this love of God and love of neighbor is, expands beyond any kind of world or temporal reality, but enters into the heavenly realm. And what's interesting, though, is, is that he's connecting this with Jesus' own word. Because right? Jesus didn't say this is better than the whole burnt offering and sacrifices, but this man actually count, accounted it to him. So Jesus' uh, words here now blows open this man's reality and sees that this is what Jesus is doing, the way that God works now is, is much more than what was once said in the Old Testament. It's being fulfilled and now uh, increased. So we see that with the sacred scripture Saturated with God. So these words are for you too, by the way. That's, that's the whole point of looking them up. Now the next thing is sacred scripture. Saturated with God's word and expanding your world. Uh, you know, what we said before about how when we spend time in God's word, it saturates us and then expands us. We see that most ex- especially in John, let's just turn to it, John chapter 5, is that uh, we could actually read the entire book of John and see this, but we, we don't have time for that. I just put two, two sections here, 21 through 24. Um, and really, let's just read uh, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. A uh, very partic- interesting thing, because we think eternal life is what? Going to happen after we die. But as Jesus talks about from death to life, what tense is the word? Past tense. So eternal life is not something that we wait for, but we now actually participate in right now. So that now eternal life expands and informs our own temporal life. Very important for us, because our life now, once we engage in the eternal life, becomes just, uh, it's a whole different reality. We, we don't, we don't, we don't uh, work under kind of the world's ways. And that's very important, especially if you go back to Matilda's suffering. Matilda saw her suffering in completely different light than a lot of us understand suffering. She saw it as a vehicle to proclaim God's gospel. That makes no sense, especially now that, as, you know, for any of us who work with the elderly, I do a lot, uh, is that, I hear this often, you know, oh, man, I just wish God would take me because I don't know why I'm here. And what do I always tell? I, well, first of all, I start in Philippians. That's an easier one where Paul says, you know, whether I live or die, um, I can't choose between the two, which means, you know, either one is really great, which is directly against those people who say, I wish I would die because death is better than life. But St. Paul, as he suffers, he's in, cha- you know, he's got this thing in his side and He's got, you know, he's in jail, he's sick. He says, you know, life or death is fantastic. St. Matilda does the same thing. And she actually says, hey, God, don't take me away quite yet. Let me suffer a little bit longer. 
uh, you know, talk to the average Joe, they would say that is, you know, that doesn't make sense. In fact, that's kind of, why would you uh, support violence against your own body? But, yeah, so the whole point is, once you enter eternal life, your world is turned upside down in a positive way. And then later on the chapter, just, you know, I think we just, we need to read 39 only. Um, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's, it's they that bear witness about, about me. So what the, what the Pharisees at that time, they're actually looking at the Bible as a book, not as a person, and Jesus' whole point is, is that you search the scripture, but you kind of search in vain because you're actually not looking for me. I'm the place where eternal life happens. I'm the location of the kingdom of God. I'm the location of the way of God, the way, the truth, and the life, which comes up later in John. So um, that's very important for us as we understand sacred scripture. St. Matilda, obviously, when she read sacred scripture and spent time in liturgical prayer and devotion, she encountered the living Lord in it. And we can too. So God's word runs in the way of eternity, which means that it plays on a much richer, deeper, and wider plane. It moves into the abundance, creating a plentiful existence. I came to life, and I came to give it abundantly. That's John 10.10. So um, that's pretty cool, but you know, does this actually happen, Pastor? Well, you know, if we want to take St. Matilda's word for it, it actually does happen in Scripture. Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 7. Uh, Isaiah, he's a priest, he goes into the temple, he's doing his normal priestly thing, you know. He's probably not that shalant, um, but he's doing his normal priestly thing, and all of a sudden, bam! The heavens open, the angels are going on, holy, holy, holy. Most people, you know, you know, the reality is, is that I think as an outside observer, you know, obviously there, it was only him in the, the Holy of Holies because he was the high priest. Only he can go in the, the Holy of Holies once a year. But let's say we're a fly on the wall, you know. We probably are just seeing some smoke going up from the incense. And we see we probably are just seeing um, Isaiah doing his thing. But from Isaiah's perspective, because God's word has now blown open his eyes to the heavenly reality, actually sees it in a very concrete way. So it actually happens. I mean, that's the fantastic thing about our lives. But normally it happens, like in, uh, I'll just go back, I didn't mean to talk about this a lot, but it's very applicable. It normally happens in when, like, for instance, Harold Lang, he's an old member here, 103. He struggled with dying, but he also had this great understanding that he had one more day to live. Like, that's the heavenly vision, like this reality that he's, you know, even though most of his body doesn't. I mean, he was 103. He still walked into, his, into the room. You know, he was still ready to give you a martini. He was still ready to enjoy life as it is. That's, that's probably the more ordinary heavenly reality as it spills over into our temporal re- uh, world. But sometimes, you know, we have these great stories about Isaiah, you know, entering into heaven or uh, John in Revelation or, um, well, the baptismal scene in Jesus or, you know, St. Matilda, or some other fantastic experience. But that doesn't relate to the average person. The average person needs strength in order to to endure the suffering just of our daily life.
Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, if I, if I, if I'm struggling with cancer, I don't necessarily need to see the angels in heaven. You know, it doesn't really apply to our struggles. If I cancer, I want, I want, you know, someone to heal me, or I, I want grace to endure it. But these other existence gives us hope that God is still present. It kind of enriches our lives to uh, the fact that there's more going on than we can see. And how that actually happens, though, is, is through God's story telling our story. So the love of the gospel, gospel being a general term, but also a specific term. In the book of Hebrews, uh, it's probably the most, I think it's probably one of the best examples of how a New Testament writer takes the Old Testament to tell a present story. So he takes this past story, applies it to Jesus in a way that hasn't been applied before, not only to Jesus, but also to the present liturgical or worship life. So he takes his God story to tell Jesus' story, not only Jesus' story, but the story of that congregation, which then, as, as a person listening to this story, will now have a way to tell their own personal story. We actually see this all through Scripture. The Gospels itself have tons of Old Testament allusions to it. This is just the way that the Bible is written. And this is the way that hopefully our lives are written. Well, how you do it is on, on a, the basic level is spend time in God's word. Uh, if we follow St. Matilda's example, liturgical prayer, which actually we're going to talk about in a second, but I'll just bring it up right now. Hymnal is pretty easy to use. We have uh, morning prayer, evening prayer, matins, vespers. We have that little devotion that we use here. Um, the matins and vesper services are a little bit more historic, so you have a little more traditional umph to it. It's been time-tested. As you spend time with there, now the thing is, though, is that, um, well, here, I don't know, I, I think Pastor Gainig, you know, he, uh, yeah, well, anyways, I, I know Pastor Gainig touched on this, whether, I don't think he spent a lot of time, but you know, what does prayer start with, right? Nothing. No, you be quiet. That's how prayer starts. Shut your mouth. <laughs> That's how I talk to the confirmation kids. I shouldn't talk to you that way. <laughs> See, we have an A-B conversation happening where God started the conversation at the beginning of time. B is, is just, you know, mankind, people kind. And then you have C right here. That's you and me. And as we enter into this conversation... As you all know, what happens in an A-B conversation, right? When C enters it, you hope, A, that they're going to talk about what you guys are talking about. They don't turn the conversation to themselves. But then if they get a no and you say, hey, this is an A-B conversation, why don't you see your way out of it, right? Or is that just a junior high thing, too? I don't know. <laughs> so prayer starts this way. C, in order to enter into this conversation, which is going on, has to listen. So Silence which goes into uh, the kids downstairs right before we started today. It's nice to have, not have the kids around and experience a little silence. Uh, you start in silence, and then you start in listening. So silence moves into listening. When do you listen? That's where you spend time in God's Word. God is speaking through His Word. Jesus is speaking. So as you read, you, you're not reading. You're listening. And that's very important for us to kind of consider as we actually read the Bible 
it's not a mental exercise, it's an exercise of the heart. Heart meaning our soul, our existence, which includes the mind, too. Uh, so it starts, it starts with uh, listening, and then it moves into meditating, thinking about it. Like, you know, is this a conversation I want to join in? Do I actually want to participate in this? Because what I'm hearing might sound a little weird, a little strange. i got to think about this. I've got to figure out how it applies to my life. And then when you get to that point, and only at that point, that's when you join into the conversation and you speak. What we normally think is praying. Uh, and then, obviously, after speaking, then we act. We do something. We live. But, uh, so, Carol, how does that happen? It happens this way. It happens with an open heart and an open mind. How that happens is oftentimes you have to work intentionally. You have to be open to these things. You can't come into the conversation ready to tell God what he's going to do. Prayer is not about convincing God to do something that he doesn't really want to do, which we often treat God that way, right? He's like a giant genie. Or, as Shirley knows, a cosmic vending machine where we put in our two cents. That's, yeah, that's the confirmation, kids. You know, where we put our two cents of words in and we really want something to come out. See, prayer is all about joining into this conversation. And now this conversation, which is God's word, it creates life. So I think that's, there's some scripture references in the notes there. God's word, Jesus' words are our life. So as we enter into that conversation, we are actually, our life is being created by this conversation. Because God's word is creative, Genesis, you know, Genesis and John and all the Bible. So as we, as we uh, keep our mouth shut, as we spend time in silence, we listen, we meditate, and then we speak, our life expands and, and, and our life grows and the vision of reality grows. But that's very, I mean, it's hard. It takes practice. I mean, I don't know if you guys, you know, Maybe you guys are like, this is like falling off the log, but for me, it's hard. Because, um, you know, I like to talk. You know, I like to go to God and say, hey, God, just, you know, shh, quiet, I got something to say. Um, now, the great thing, though, is, is like your children. You know, mommy, daddy, mommy, and daddy, mommy, daddy, they're you know, pulling on your leg. Now, if, you're talking to, if I'm talking to my wife about something important, I'll say, Audrey, one second, Isaac, one second. Um, and then I'm very excited to hear what they have to say. The difference now, though, is imagine that same scenario, but where Holly and I are talking in a way that we want Isaac and Audrey to join in. Not wait. Wait only insofar as because this conversation includes them, but is so important, I want to make sure that they understand what we're talking about that they listen. So um, that's a great thing about our Heavenly Father. He actually wants us to, you know, he wants to engage in our conversation. But not for his purposes, but for you, he wants you to make sure that you're talking about the, the same thing. Because if we're talking about the same thing, then we're talking about life, eternal life, your life, God's gifts, blessings, good things. See, what happens is, Mary and Shirley knows this, and I think Holly too. We entered this conversation asking for pink ponies or stuff. Things that actually are not about the conversation. And then when God says, hey, listen, actually that's not what we're talking about, 
we say, why would I pray anyways? What's the point? Well, maybe we, we entered into that conversation with the, the wrong way of looking at things. But getting to that point, entering into that conversation in a very good way, oh my gosh, that's a, that's a, that's a hard thing to do. I mean, yeah, because when we're suffering from cancer or we're suffering from something, we kind of want the world to turn to us and help us, especially God. But we, but we, as we enter into that conversation, we have one thing or two things that we kind of need to think about. A, God's goodness is always better than ours. And that God's ways are not our ways. Those two things. Isaiah 55 says, God says to Isaiah, my ways are not your ways. My ways are above your ways, and my thoughts are above your thoughts. Um, so sometimes when things really are bad and we can't figure it out, it's an act of faith to say, okay. But we believe that statement. We believe Isaiah 55, that God's ways, in fact, are above our ways, and his goodness is always better than our goodness. In fact, it goes back to the sponge, we are so saturated with God. The problem is not God's presence in our life and not even his action in our life. The problem is, is that we need to catch up to it. And sometimes when we catch up to it, it you know, it happens, you know, the other side of, of, uh, of the grave. So that's a long answer, Carol. That's how it happens. That's a very simple way of understanding how that reality expands our reality. And how uh, how uh, that that um, story tells our story. Oh, you know, bec- uh, just to finish it. You know, because as we as we enter into the conversation, it's no longer A, B, and C, right? It's just A and B then, because we become part of the B. Okay. All right, Holy Communion. This is probably. I don't have my phone with me. Oh, yeah, good. We're, we're about done. Christ's flesh in your life. You know, obviously John 6, 54, where it's, uh, well, I think we're on John 5, so we can just probably turn the page over. Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So now we're back to eternal life, Holy Communion expanding our whole uh, reality. Um. Again, we could read all of John chapter 6, but we don't have time for 71 verses. Through the Lord's Supper, as the flesh and blood of Jesus enters into your flesh and blood, your life works according to eternal life. Like God's word, the Lord's Supper opens your existence to live into the abundance or the manifold, beyond the earthly horizon into the heavenly kingdom. And as heaven is brought to earth through the kingdom of God, that is working among us, Our temporal life doesn't leave this earth. Rather, it lives itself according to a fuller reality. Living life according to the Lord's Supper means living in the presence of God, which transforms your normal life into something more profound, which we get into the ecstasy of St. Matilda, or the engrossed in the presence of God. There's an internal change to your soul and your conscience and an external change in your life, which we see already in the liturgy. Thank the Lord, sing his praise, tell everyone what he has done. So, that's from the liturgy, post-communicanticle. Knowing, read as experiencing, 
the love of God is received in its immensity and fullness through the concrete manifestation of that same love in the Lord's Supper. There is a profound connection between Jesus' word, especially in the Holy Gospel. All right, you guys can all read that. So how this plays into our norm, the normal divine service and the abnormal human service, I'm trying to play on words there, is, is you know, if we take a look at uh, Holy Scripture in the early church in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, most specifically, we see that we see the connection, obviously, between sacred scripture and Holy Communion. But we see that the normal rhythm of the divine service isn't so ordinary. Like the early church in St. Matilda, the life lived in sacred scripture and Holy Eucharist radically changes what on the surface is an ordinary life. Because what we see in the early church is we have these people coming together for the apostolic teaching the breaking of the bread, the Holy Eucharist, the fellowship, the koinia, and that, that happens in the Lord's Supper, but koinia also happens in this radical charity where um, even the early Lord's, even, even the, the early church, you know, they would bring the bread and wine forward to the, to the pastor, to the, like the president, the, 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 the guy with the chasm on, um, and then he would take the bread and wine, transform it into the body and blood of Jesus, they would all receive it. They would share it, koinia, fellowship. But that fellowship then would spill over into the offering where people would bring their stuff forward to the pastor, and the pastor would say would transform the stuff into charity by giving it to those who needed it. And so what we have is we have a very interesting image here. The mimicking of the, the what happens with God's uh, gospel in the Lord's Supper and then the gospel in our own lives that carries things out. That, that happened to the extent that the Roman emperor needed to find out about it, find out about it, and Justin Martyr in the year 150 had to write an apology about these Christians. They're doing all these strange things because they're, they're loving people who are, are unlovable. This is subversive to our society. And Justin Martyr said, no, no, we're not some kind of rebel group. This is what we do. So a very, very ordinary people doing some very, you know, extraordinary things through very simple things. Bringing bread and wine to church and their stuff to church. Changed civilization. That's just from sacred scripture and the Holy Eucharist. Okay? Those things happen in our church every single week, every, all, every day except for Mondays. <laughs> um, and the, the, so the, the objective nature, that, that stuff happens. I mean, I, again, I can bring in a, a, a non-Christian and say, what's happening here? Well, some bread and wines brought forward, and then they bring their stuff, mainly money. That stuff ha- is happening. But the, the goal in life is actually that it would happen in us and thus transform us. Lindsay? Oh, because, um, we, yeah, we always start with Jesus' first word. So we actually, if you want to use that analogy in an A-B conversation, Jesus started the conversation. So Jesus always makes the first move in bringing you into this community. And as he brings you into this community, he brings you into the way of God, the kingdom of God. And this is, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. Uh, living a life of abundance. They, I mean, this is all still a little churchy language. 
Well, no, but see, that's the thing, though, is that you say Jesus is already, where do, we, where do we get these things from? Well, God gives us, you know, this stuff. These are God's gifts. And God has given these gifts for a purpose, which actually is not about us. It's about other people. So when I bring this stuff to church, it's not because I need to get in with God. It's because I'm already part of God. Yeah. Um, I'm already part of the way of God or the kingdom of God. And since I'm a son of God, daughter of God, this is how my family works. I, I, can, I can use all this stuff for, to help other people because you know what? I got everything I need in, in the presence of God, which is still a little Christianese. I mean, the, the reality is, is that they won't understand that. They won't understand it right away. They won't actually. Be, they say, "You actually believe that? That God loves you so much, you, you're willing to give this stuff up?" We say, "Yeah, really." I mean, I had a, I had one point where some guy said to me, "You really believe this stuff?" I said, "Yeah," and he's like, "Man, I just I I can't get past getting up that early on Sunday morning." <laughs> this is what I said. No, yeah. Uh, so this, this this whole notion that. Uh, you know, we're, we're doing it because we, you know, we need to get good with God. That, that's a fundamental break in their notion of religion. And then you can get into that conversation. This is not about a religion. This is about a life lived in the presence of God. Uh, you know, because, uh, you know, God, God doesn't need this stuff. Like, who are we giving it to? We're going to give it to God? This is the, uh, you know, I, I don't know... Did anybody, I know my wife came to the Hindu Mandir temple. Some other adults with this. Um, they actually bring stuff and they put it in front of the idol. And it just stays there. I mean, yeah, the guys come around and they pick it up. But, but yeah, they just, so that, for me, that, that's, that's, that's kind of, you know, not right. I'd use a different word. But when, when we bring things forward, it's transformed into love, concrete manifestations of love. Yeah. Which doesn't really end in us. So that's the thing. Sacrif- the, the notion of a sacrifice, according to the world religions, always is about us. I'm, I'm going to make myself right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the receiver of this action. But as, as we read in St. Matilda's life, and then also obviously in our understanding of the Lord's Supper, our lives as we leave this place are not about us. They're not about getting right with God or, or anything. It's, it's all about showing the unconditional love of God in the world. Obviously, I think your friend would probably be, or this person would be, you know, it would be a dialogue. So, I, don't, I mean, there's a variety of ways that the conversation could go. Abby. Yes. Right. Right. Abstract notion of God. Yep. I think. I think. I think. Though, here's the thing, though, Lindsay, is that you you might have a group of people who probably know something about Jesus already and have their own kind of presuppositions about who He is. So I, I would struggle with that conversation because I would wonder even if they want to listen. So, uh, so let's presume, I think what Abby's talking about is this presumption that people actually want to, 
you know, this idea like, well, tell me about them, like, because I don't know much about them. And they actually are kind of interested in learning. Or, or just tell me about Christianity. Maybe that maybe that's a better way to say it. And then we say, well, let's talk about Jesus. Because, um, again, and that's getting to know the story of Jesus, which goes back to Carol's question about spending time in Scripture and, and actually knowing it in a way that it's so comfortable, it's part of our own story. Um, but yeah, Abby's absolutely right. Because when you talk about Jesus, you talk about something, somebody you can, you, know, you can actually touch. And that's actually, though, as people enter or relate to Christianity, that's actually probably how they actually know about Christianity, is by people, negatively and positively. So, I mean, people don't understand Christianity unless it's somebody from across the world who happens to pick up a book. Most people don't understand Christianity in the abstract. They understand it in the concrete. Um, again, both positive and negatively. Uh, which is usually by their experiences. And then we say, you know, let's not talk about your experiences. Let's talk about the objective reality of who Jesus is and what he's done. And that goes back to Abby's point. Then, you, then you're put at a cross, crisis or crossroads. Either you're going to be like, hey, this is awesome. Let's do this. Or you're going to be, eh, no thanks. Um, which we actually saw in the Roman world. Just, just like when, you know, Justin the Martyr had to make this apology because the Romans were thought this Jesus group was dangerous. It's going to upset a society. It's going to change things. Which is pretty good, right? This guy is a crackpot. Yep. That's right. So you read all 71 verses. Good job. <laughs> all right, Holly. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, you see this. Uh, yeah, exactly. And e even like in on the missionary field, uh, you know, knowing some missionaries, uh, you know, e even even the poorest church community is still charitable. I mean, it's still doing something that in that surrounding area isn't normal. You know, they already have nothing, but they're still willing to give up out of their uh, out of their nothingness. <laughs> uh, that's uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. The Apostle Paul, you know, is like gung-ho on this church. And, uh, you know, they gave out of their, you know, nothingness. They, they didn't have anything, but yet they're the, they're the biggest givers around here. In fact, I told them, stop giving, please. So, so this whole understanding is that no matter what level we're at, the notion of abundance is fundamental to the reality of our life together, that we bring our stuff together and we change things. Now, this is a little, a little farther away from St. Matilda than I thought we were going to be, but that's, but that, that, that's the, 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 the theology of abundance, too, that plays out. Carol, then we're going to go. Fantastic. That's good. Uh, that's that, that last little part there is just simply your own personal piety. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 6 is fundamental to that because in the Old Testament, there is a connection between what happens in the temple and happens in the home. 
the world of the temple expands into the life of the home. And that would be then the same in the early church where these people you know, celebrated the Lord's Supper and then continued on in their homes. Uh, the eternal, uh, the altar was burning all the time in, in the temple. So we had a cloud of smoke happening in all these. In the olden days, the, the hearth always had smoke going out. You know, they didn't, they didn't have a box of matches, you know, to light the fire every day, so they kept the fire going. So the Old Testament writers actually used that as a, a, a uh, great image for the Deuteronomy chapter 6, but neither here nor there. So uh, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.